1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're in the middle of it. Paul is asking how, as Christians, do we live in a hostile world? And he is talking about our walk. Our walk is our lifestyle. And we don't just talk the talk, but we walk the walk. And he is concentrating on two specific areas where our lifestyle as Christians is going to clash with the world. And one is sexual purity. We've looked at that. And we are to be different. We're to show a better way, not by repressing God-given desires, but by redirecting them in the way that God would have us use them. And what we've started looking at now is not just purity, but love. Interesting that love follows purity. And it's Philadelphia love, which only Christians know, because it's brotherly love, love toward one another. And that's what we've started looking at. And we've said one thing about this love is that it's taught We didn't know this love until we were born of the Spirit. We had a new nature, and this love sees the new nature in another brother or sister, and we are drawn to them, and we love them as Christ loves them. And it doesn't matter what uh, our background is. It doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter what our interests may be. It doesn't matter what our culture is we rise above all of that because this love knows no boundaries and Paul is urging these Thessalonians which is where we finished to grow in this love they did manifest this love this church manifests Philadelphia love praise God but there is more there is always more it's like uh, the ocean of God's love uh, have, have you been to the beach recently? Well, I haven't, but over the summer I went to the beach a lot because it was a heat wave. And we tend to paddle, or I do, uh, because I'm afraid of water. So I paddle at the seashore. And we're like that, aren't we, with the love of Jesus Christ? Because we can't just force ourselves to love uh, our brothers and sisters. The more we love Jesus, the more we will love the Lord's. And so we tend to paddle, don't we, uh, on uh, the shore. But what God wants us to do, what Paul wanted the Thessalonians to do, was to go right out and not just swim, but just lose oneself in the currents of his love. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, when we're just full of the love of Jesus Christ. We just can't help but love one another. Now, we're going to carry on. I just want to finish the sermon that I preached last time I was here, and then we'll go into communion. So, it's taught love. The second thing we are able to say about it is that it's a quiet love. I know that sounds strange, But let's read the relevant verses. Verse 11. Verse 11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. 
Now, what does quiet mean here? It's the same word that Peter uses in his letter when he talks about the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Do we have a gentle and quiet spirit? This is a lovely illustration because the Thessalonians, they were young believers and they were facing a hostile world and that world was persecuting them. Now, there is nothing quiet about persecution. So, all around them, there is violence. But in their spirits, they're quiet. I like that. So, you can think of all the tumults in Thessalonica, and then the church. It's a haven of quietness and rest. It's tragic when any church becomes a place of controversy and uh, fighting. A church is a place of quietness and safety and peace. So this is what Paul is thinking of. But what you've got here is an oxymoron. I think it's an oxymoron. What's an oxymoron? Well, it doesn't make sense, does it? To aspire to be quiet. Let me put it in a different way. It's a paradox, this. It's a contradiction. You're making it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Have you ever come across an ambitious person who wants to lead a quiet life? I haven't. Uh, One translation, I think it's Phillips' translation, is make it your ambition to have no ambition. Well, dear me, it gets worse, doesn't it? What does it mean? Well, like with sexual desires... Paul isn't saying we've got to repress our natural ambitions. We're created with an ambition. There's nothing wrong with an ambition. But what we've got to do with it is redirect it. The problem with our ambition is that it's a carnal ambition. And we want to be numero uno, don't we? Don't you? Any preacher is really jealous if there's another preacher that's better than them. Let's, you know, confess it. But what Paul is saying is, make it your ambition not to be jealous. To rejoice if somebody else is more gifted than you. We sometimes think, don't we, we want to be the best church in Cardiff. That's not right. That's carnal ambition. We're not in competition with any church. Can we rejoice if another church is seeing more blessing than we? What should be our ambition? Surely our ambition should be to be a church in Cardiff where the gospel is preached and where love is shown. Can you see what Paul is getting at? We we all just want to be on top. And that's not the Christian way. The Christian way is the other way around. Jesus Christ said, whoever wants to save his life must lose it. If you want to go on in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you go higher by going lower. You don't aspire to sit in the big seats, but you aspire to have the lowest place. 
That's what he's talking about. And can you understand now the oxymoron? Because it's a battle, isn't it? None of us likes to take the lower place. So we must make it our ambition to be humble and to be lowly and to let others be more important than we are. That's what Paul says in Philippians. Uh, Consider others. Uh, The better translation is not better than yourselves, but more important. More important. Are you willing to play second violin? I, I was in a concert a few weeks ago, and I'm amazed at the lead player whether it's a violin or a piano or whatever. Do you love violin concertos? I I like them. And I want to be the first violin, the the one who has all the attention. Well, maybe God wants you to be the first violin, but are you willing to be the second violin? Are you? Maybe if we were willing for that, God would enable us and entrust us with the first violin. So... Strive, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Wasn't the Apostle Paul an embodiment of that? The Apostle Paul, the man chosen by God to be the Apostle to the Gentiles, he didn't blow his own trumpet, did he? By the end of his life, Paul had been so slandered by other so-called believers that most of the churches had turned their backs on him. Paul didn't have, I don't know, Paul ministries. He could have, couldn't he? He he, he could have uh, marketed himself as not just, this is not just any apostle. This is the apostle. But he didn't. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus sake. Let me give you some other verses. We're living in polarized times, aren't we, in this country? That should not be reflected in the church. What a witness when the country is so uh, riven with divisions. What a witness if the church of Jesus Christ isn't bothered about that, and we have bigger things that bind us together. Let me read, Paul urging Timothy to pray for those in authority. Uh, You know the verse in 1 Timothy 3. Why are we to pray for those in authority? That we may be able to lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. Do we pray for that? Or do we want our particular person to be president or prime minister or whatever? Or do we say, no, no. It's stability that we want so that the gospel can go out so that we can lead quiet, godly lives. I've got to admit, I feel very uncomfortable with American evangelicalism at the moment and the way it's uh, going very right-wing. It doesn't sound like the Christianity that we have here in Thessalonica, does it? A quiet and a gentle spirit. Now let's open this up a bit. If we are to lead quiet lives, it means 
we let other people be. What does Paul say? It is with fear and trembling that I'm going to speak on these words. But when we go through a book like this, we have no choice. I would never have chosen to speak on these words, but look at what Paul says, that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. I like that. Mind your own business. What does it mean? God has given us his word. Think of the children of Israel in the land. The land had clear boundaries. God has given you and me clear boundaries in his word. But just like the children of Israel in the land, I think of the different tribes allocated their places. Within those boundaries, there was freedom, right? So there were boundaries, but within them, there was freedom. And that's a good picture of the Christian life individually and corporately in the church. We have the boundaries. What are our boundary markers? It is the word of God. And those boundaries don't change. It's not like the local councils, local councils in Wales who are constantly changing their boundaries. The boundaries of God's word are fixed. The principles of scripture are timeless. It doesn't matter whether you're in first century Thessalonica or in 21st century Cardiff. The boundaries are there. And within those boundaries, there is freedom of movement. There is freedom for you and I to exercise what we call liberty of conscience. We don't hear much about that these days. Christian liberty. When the truth has set you free, you know what comes? You are free indeed. And sad to say, that often people are set free by Christ only to be brought into bondage by his well-meaning people. So Paul is saying, look, you've got to lead your own life. You have no right to meddle in the affairs of others. Now, you can see why this is a very difficult area to speak on. Think of it like this. We've all got our own personal space. We are our own masters in that regard. We are accountable to God through our conscience and according to the dictates of his word. Nobody has the right to cross into your personal space. Now, if you're a parent, you have an authority over your children and to a degree, there is an authority structure as well in a country and in a church. But when we meddle in other people's lives, we cross that boundary. And it's not peace anymore. It's tension and even all sorts of conflict. And it's not rights. So I'm here tonight to fly the flag for Christian liberty. My conscience as a preacher is to be bound only to the word of God. I have no right to tell you to do something or not do something that isn't sanctioned by the word. There is freedom within the bounds of Scripture. 
Martin Luther, I like Martin Luther. Don't you like Martin Luther? He, he was a volcano of a man, wasn't he? He was great. Do you know, Martin Luther was accused by some of pussyfooting the Reformation. They said he was too soft. Martin Luther, too soft. He had to fight against people who thought themselves super spiritual and who had a list of rules and they were meddling in other people's affairs. They were telling other Christians, why aren't you keeping that rule? Why aren't you doing that? Why are you doing that? And do you know what Martin Luther did? Martin Luther didn't stay quiet. This is what he said about people who meddled in other people's business. They have the notion that they must control everything and superintend and criticize what others do. And this is what Luther says. These are malignant people. That's very strong, isn't it? <laughs> They're like a cancer. They stir up nothing but mischief and have no grace to do anything good even though in other respects they may have excellent gifts. For they do not use their talents in their calling or in the service of their neighbor. They use them only to their own glory and advantage. Uh, Paul said in Romans 14, the great chapter on Christian liberty, who are you to pass judgments on the servant on another? It is before his own master that we stand or fall. Paul was thinking of meat offered to idols. There was no position in Scripture. It was not wrong to eat meat offered unto idols, and there was nothing wrong uh, with eating meat offered to idols. Both positions were biblical, but Christians were falling out of it, and they were judging each other over it. And Paul says, mind your own business, each to his own. Not live and let die, live and let live, live and let live. Now, I haven't eaten meat offered to idols, I don't think, unless I've been to some Indian restaurant, I don't know, they might have offered it to an idol. But what's the, what's the area where this affects us? I asked the elders in the vestry to pray for this now. Uh, because I want God to give me the right words. There's no point in me using historical examples because that's not going to cut with us. What are the kind of things where we have no authority to say to another brother or sister, you can or can't do that? I've just got a few examples here, and I'm mentioning these with as much grace as I can. The first is... None of us have the right to say to another Christian what they should wear. Apart from being inappropriately dressed, I think, there is nothing in the Bible about what you should wear. Let me give you an example. Um, I've got a good friend. He's an elder in an evangelical church in a Welsh uh, church and he is as traditional as anything even if he's not preaching on a Sunday he's in a grey suit white shirt sober tie they have young men preach and they don't come 
in a suit. They'll be casually dressed. My friend won't say anything to them. He'll accept them. And lo and behold, the next time the young person comes, he'll be in a suit. Not because he's been told, you've got to come in a suit. But he wants to exercise the same kind of love that my elder friend has shown. Do you understand? We are not to judge one another in terms of what we wear. If I was not to be in a tie tonight, that would be a non-issue. It doesn't matter whether we're smartly dressed, whether we're casually dressed. I'm talking of the whole congregation now. The most important thing is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to be clothed with humility. Those are the items of dress that the Bible talks about, to be clothed with good works. May God help us not to bat an eyelid in terms of what we wear. Another example how we use our free time. We've all got different interests, haven't we? I'm not going to bore you with mine. But what we watch, within the bounds of the Bible now, what we watch, what we read, what we listen to, where we go, if it's not sin, there's liberty of conscience. I was in a concert, the concert I was mentioning, and Stravinsky, have you heard of Stravinsky? was being played. His piece, The Rite of Spring. Do you know when that was first played in the, uh, in the start of the 20th century, it caused a riot because it was so outrageous. It was like the heavy metal of its day. I've got an eclectic taste in music. If you come with me, in the car, I've got Radio 3 and I've got Planet Rock. Now, I wouldn't play Planet Rock if I was giving a lift to some of my brothers or sisters because I wouldn't want to cause offence. Love. But there is liberty of conscience unless it is sin. Let me go on to another example. Are you ready? The Bible doesn't say that if you're a believer, you must not drink alcohol. Now, some believers, because they know the temptation that alcohol gives them, Avoid it as the plague. And that's absolutely the right thing to do. That's what people converted in the South Wales Valleys in the 1904-05 revival did. Because alcoholism was rampant. It was wise. But we can't make not drinking alcohol a matter of conscience. We can't. It's Christian 
liberty. Here's uh, one uh, good evangelical Presbyterian commentator. I don't know if you know him, Gethin Richard Phillips in the States. The examples I've just given of dress, how we use our free time, and alcohol, they're taken from Richard Phillips's excellent commentary. Christians should exercise love towards others and a wise love that knows how and when to respect privacy. We have plenty to do with our own business. Don't you agree? There's plenty of sin in my own heart to interfere with other people's business. And then I like the way that Phillips puts it. Uh, some people, they just buzz around. That's a good description, isn't it? Buzz around. Interfering. May that not be true of us. So this is my first point. Quiet. Peaceable. That we respect one another in all sorts of areas where there is liberty of conscience. Because the Bible allows it. And actually, you may learn something as well. I found traveling uh, around the world to visit our missionaries, it really does help you realize what is biblical from what is just cultural. And how often it's just a matter of taste. We can be so prejudiced, can't we? We may not like something, and then we develop a theology around it. That's not right. That's not right. I'm putting my head on the block now. I don't like musicals, right? I don't like them. They're not my cup of tea. But I wouldn't write a theology of why Christians shouldn't go to musicals. Everything in the world is tainted. If you pick anybody or anything in this world, you're going to find something that is dodge. Unless it's condemned by the Bible and it's sin that is condemned, not things. It's the Colossian heresy. Touch not, taste not. It's sin that's condemned. And it's a sin. And I'm saying this along with Luther. It's a sin when we become a conscience to another Christian. It's a sin when we meddle in one another's affairs. It's a sin to cross that personal boundary and try to control other people. And then one more, and then we'll come to communion. It's quiet love, but it's also busy. I like that. Busy. Quiet and busy. Look at what Paul says. Lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. The problem with the people that were meddling in others' affairs was that they weren't busy. The saying goes, the devil finds work for idle hands. So there were super spiritual people at Thessalonica, as there have always been super spiritual people, and they had such a view of the second coming of Jesus Christ, they thought he was going to come imminently, so they said, we're not going to bother working. It's not spiritual to work with our hands, so we're just going to wait for the second coming, and we're just going to 
go around trying uh, to control other believers in all sorts of ways that are unbiblical. And Paul says, you're not spiritual. You've got to work with your own hands. Doesn't Paul say in another scripture, if you don't work, you don't eat? God has commanded, do you believe that God has commanded you to work? Now, I'm not just thinking of paid employment here. God has put us in this world to work. What is the command, the fourth command? Do you know what the fourth command is? Yeah, you say, honor the seventh day, one day in seven. Rest on one day in seven. But that's not all. Do you know what else the fourth command says? Six days shalt thou work. This world isn't meant to be a holiday. We're here to work. Isn't it interesting that the two areas that Paul deals with in 1 Thessalonians 4 are the two creation ordinances. Purity, God gave marriage before the fall in paradise. And what are we looking at here? We're looking at work. God gave work to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before sin came in. We'll be working in heaven, won't we? I know sin has brought uh, sweat and toil and all the unpleasantness, I'm sure committees as well. (laughs) But we're here to work. And it's not Christian love to just sit around all day meditating and, I don't know, reading the Bible and just praying. That's, Paul says, you've got to work. You've got to work. Uh, let me read Second Thessalonians chapter 3. For when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall they eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly, undisciplined, idle manner, not working at all, but are busy bodies. Now those who are such, we command. This is not a matter of personal conscience. We command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness. Stop meddling. You've got no right, Paul says, to tell other believers what they should or shouldn't do. You can't command, but I am commanding you. Mind your own business. That's what he's saying. It'd be good if we could learn this as our motto. Mind your own business. You say it in love, but it's still true. And if you see another believer being controlled, mind your own business, let them be. What these people were doing, you see, they were committing another sin as well. They weren't just interfering in another person's affair. They weren't working. And as a result of that, they were going around gossiping. Isn't this another one of the respectable sins? The Bible's got a great deal to say about gossiping. It hasn't got much to say about the sins we're protesting about today. It does condemn them, but there is far more condemnation regarding gossip. I'm determined as the pastor of this church not to allow gossip to go unpassed. 
Maybe it's an impossible task because we're all guilty, aren't we? We can't help it. And we can be so devious here. We don't call it gossip. We call it information for prayer. But really, it's just gossip. We don't need to say it. May this church be as it is, as it is, but may it be more and more a place that is quiet, peaceable, safe, where those who are weaker are not going to be controlled by those who are stronger. That we look out for one another. There's a whole difference between caring for one another and interfering in one another's lives. May we as elders be courageous. May we not let strong characters cross the line. Because if it happened in Thessalonica, which was a near-perfect church, it will happen in any church. May we as elders not tolerate gossip. We're not good, are we? Not just elders now, but all of us. We allow these respectable sins. We go over the top if the preacher isn't in a suit. But we don't do that if Christians are gossiping because it's a respectable sin. That's not right. That's not right. Do you realize that God has put you where you are, students? God has put you on the course that you're doing? There's something just as spiritual about studying. I studied geography and I studied soils, right? Fascinating subject, soils. It was just as spiritual for me to study soils as it was for me to preach. I think preaching is probably more important for the kingdom of God than the study of soils. Podzilization and leaching, well, it's fascinating, but it won't save your soul. But it was just a spiritual praise in the common things. And studying soils is definitely that. In the common things of life. It's goings out and in. Those of you who are going to work, it's a drudge, I know, these days. But God has put you where you are. And you do your work to his glory. Those of you who are retired, you haven't stopped working. You may have stopped paid employment but God has given you gifts uh, some of you have got the gift of pastoring others some of you have a phone ministry that is phenomenal some of you have a gift of prayer some of you have a gift of encouragement some of you have a gift of just being here we've all got something to do as Andy has been very helpfully teaching us in Romans I had a lady in my previous church, Mrs. Payton, name was. She was great. She, she would bake a cake to the glory of God. <laughs> and they were good cakes as well, I think, because of that. She would pray before putting the cake in the oven. <laughs> I, I like that. And then very quickly, if we are quiet, peaceable, not interfering, just governed by the word. And we're just easy. We're e I like that term. I'm easy. Are you easy? I'm easy. 
when it comes to things that are matters of conscience. I'm easy. I want to learn. I want to learn. I look back on my own life, and I'm a Pharisee by temperament. If you realize some of the things I frowned upon as a young Christian, you'd, you'd be amazed. But I want to be serious. I don't want to be easy when it comes to what God says. I want to do what God tells me to do, even if it means can I say it even if it means having to deal with things that the Bible calls sin but somehow the reformed evangelical scene tolerates we can't allow it we can't and then when we do this when we're quiet and busy in this lovely paradox we are a witness aren't we to those who are outside and I'm just thinking of Paul. Do you know what Paul did? Uh, Paul uh, was an exception. He did tent making, and it meant he was working with leather, and he would be spending hours in uh, uh, the um, workshop cutting the leather, and customers would be coming in, and co-workers would be there, and Paul would be a normal man. He would be... Uh, a hard-working labourer, and he'd be talking maybe to his co-workers about this saviour that has saved him, and he might be given an opportunity to talk to the customers that are coming to the shop. He's not, as it were, taking all his time witnessing because he's there to work, but there's something about this little man with a big nose and an eye condition that is attractive, and people see something in him of Christ, and they want to know about it. Isn't that what Christianity is about? I was in Lampeter last Sunday, and there's a lady in that church. I don't know if she still works in the surgery in Lampeter, but she worked in reception in the surgery. And do you know how many people came to the church in Lampeter having been to the surgery? Because that lady just would not stop talking about Jesus. I don't know if the Lord will come tomorrow. But we've still got to work. Martin Luther again, he said, if he knew with 100% certainty if Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, he would still plant a tree today. Plant your tree, brother, sister. Do something for the Lord. Don't, don't drag other Christians down by interfering. Gossip sucks the energy out of a room, doesn't it? You know us Welsh ministers, we can drag ourselves down. Let's build ourselves up and let's do something. Do something with the gifts God has given you this week for his name's sake.